0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Heather Christensen. She's an adjunct clinical faculty at Ferris State University, where she also graduated, so go Bulldogs. Uh, President of the Michigan Pharmacists Association and the Residency Director for Ambulatory Care at Spectrum Health, where she's also a clinical pharmacist. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christensen.
1: Good morning. Thank you very much for the invite.
0: Yeah, well, we want to get you on here today because Michigan has recently kind of tackled some of the PBM issues that we've been seeing across the country on a state-by-state basis. And you know, one of the things that they just passed or were discussing in passing uh, was Michigan House Bill 4348 which I believe is currently in their Senate, but can you kind of update us on what's going on with that PBM bill and what it is?
1: Yeah, it was probably about a month ago. It passed the House very quickly, so it was quite surprising for us, and it is in the Senate now. The bill was brought to the House and the Senate to the legislature by Julie Kelly, who is a a House Representative from the Otsiko District. And I got the fortune of working with her very early on in her career in politics as her husband was running for a position at the house and her husband was lieutenant governor. So she is very closely understanding of pharmacy and community pharmacy, particularly because of the community where they live is kind of sort of pharmacy desert-ish and where there's not a lot of access to pharmacy in their very rural area. And... It becomes an issue, and why she's passionate about it. And obviously, I'm not speaking directly for her, but from listening to her, quite a few years ago, a few pharmacy benefit managers in Michigan changed contracts that didn't allow patients to go to specific pharmacies to get their medicine, which can be a pretty big burden, particularly in that they live in a very rural area and there's one or two pharmacies within an hour distance and then you not know, they can only go to one and not only that they've been working with say their pharmacist at this one location for 20 years and now they can't do that anymore so house bill 4348 just starts to break down some of those barriers cbms so or pharmacy benefit managers are an essential part of how community pharmacies work because they allow for adjudication of claims so Say, for instance, we, you and I go to the pharmacy, we need an antibiotic because we were sick. So we take our prescription to the pharmacy to get our penicillin filled and we have this insurance, it's really great, and the insurance says that my copay should be a dollar. Well, the pharmacy has to buy the medication for a certain amount of money and so the PBM set up this online real-time adjudication cloud situation, if you would, to say the pharmacy benefit manager or the insurance that your provider your, your employer gives you will cover all of it but that one dollar and then that pbm gets the money from the insurer and pays the pharmacy so it really took a lot of paperwork and long like, time out of paying the pharmacists for the dispensation of a product so that's where pbm started quite a few years ago back in the 80s but since then They've continued to grow and do a lot of things that aren't really beneficial for pharmacies. And one of them is because I work for Spectrum Health, we have preferred pharmacies. These preferred pharmacies are negotiated with these PBMs. And then these PBMs, say like CVS, requires CVS Caremark to be their primary pharmacy. So like there's these behind-the-scenes little nuggets of gouging of dollars, we could say. I've kind of kinda taking in a couple of different directions. Would you have any clarifying questions and things that you would want me to explain further?
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of listeners obviously they kinda of get where the PBM games have been coming and things like that. Was there anything specifically in Michigan that they saw that was really like egregious as we've seen I believe it's three access advisors, Antonio Chacha has pointed out in several states, starting in my home state of Ohio, also Florida and recently Massachusetts. What kind of in Michigan really spurred this? Was it just that you know she grew up in a pharmacy desert and saw that people were being restricted type of type of event, or was it really pharmacists speaking up because of some practices they were seeing, like the price gouging you alluded to?
1: Yeah, so she has worked really closely with her local pharmacist and the callbacks and inability to make money on actually having prescriptions be sold at their pharmacy. So it's it's not known to many people that to actually operate a pharmacy, it's really hard to make money. One of the things that the PBMs do is the price gouging in the sense of when we used to have paper prescriptions, there used to be a lot more room for error. We have a little bit less room for error now that we're doing a lot more electronic prescriptions. But the PBMs can come back and do an audit of, They ten prescriptions out of 100, and if they find one small error on dating or DEAs or anything, they'll take a percentage of that claim back, but what they do is they extrapolate that out for all of the claims that were built in that entire time frame and then take that money back after the sale and after the situation where the pharmacy has done the dispensation and they have no say in it. So the price gouging is a huge part of what is allowing this 4348 to be a thing. The secondary part is there's issues relative to formularies and patients having access to their medications. PBMs can set formularies that work on their benefit because they get contracts with wholesaler or not wholesalers but manufacturers and the manufacturers say if you make my drug your primary drug on your formulary, I'll give you a discount on the back end. So I'll rebate you dollars so that the drug manufacturer gets the sale, but then the PBM makes more money. So it in my practice particularly that's a huge piece. Pharmacists see it in the community setting, but the physicians and the prescribing of medications based on Uh, literature outcomes and what's best for the patient gets controlled by PBMs and prices and what's relative to how they make their formularies. So the affordability and the access are the big pieces that are driving this piece of legislation.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. And so the the interesting thing with this, from from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is PBMs do with any time that there's a sale of a prescription, whether it be to a, a nursing home patient from like a clinical care setting, a mail-order pharmacy, a typical retail setting. But when it comes to things like maybe inpatient hospital, that gets billed in a entirely different way. So that might be a group of pharmacists that really don't have a whole lot of experience with this because they're dealing with more of a collective billing through the hospital and through the, the major carrier insurance, not necessarily through the PBM. Is that correct?
1: Yep, that is 100% correct. And- If we look at our insurance, the hospitals are billed through a different type of insurance. So if we look at our Medicare population, we have Medicare Part D, we have our pharmacy benefit which is very different from our hospital and or our physician primary care practice billing. So they're not intertwined at all, so they don't have to look at that billing component.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that's where we see a lot of the physicians who get frustrated because all the PAs, the prior auth, the outpatient stuff, because they're using clinical judgment, maybe in a hospital, but as soon as they leave that setting, it now hops into a different world of pharmacy billing. And that's where we see a lot of these like burdens and kind of hiccups in care start occurring that a lot of it's just caused by PBMs and kind of the formulas they make the gouging, if they, if you will, as you called it, or the redirection of care because of what they make money on. Right.
1: And a larger difference, too, when we look at this formulary and how things are set up, when we're looking at health care settings, if we look at I'm going to treat a patient for a a thrombosis, so a PE or a and there are four or five different options and a hospital to be financially stable it's a big struggle to carry that many options to cover up a potential this many people. So from a population health and a cost containment, they look at the best drugs with the best outcomes, with the least side effects to treat their population as a whole. When you go out into the community, that might not be the best for you because of multiple different reasons. So the pharmacy in the community setting will carry all of those medications and that's where we then have to lean on to what the pharmacy coverage is because of the pharmacy coverage and the formulary for each different carrier is significantly different. And when we, it is, from a transitions of care situation, pretty difficult in that a patient will leave the hospital on a medicine to prevent that clot from getting bigger or worse. And um, the, the discharging physician will write the continuation, send them home on um, this prescription, they get to the pharmacy, it's not covered and it takes days before somebody at the primary care physician's office or the specialty office to actually get that information and give the patient the drug. So you have your community pharmacists that are stuck right in the middle and saying, I can't help you right now and this is pretty dangerous because you just got out of the hospital and I can't give you your medicine because it costs a significant amount of money. So patients generally can't pay for that out of pocket.
0: Yeah, and, you know, personally I've seen that kind of working. You're in a more of an ambulatory care, and so I'm sure you've seen some of this where you, they come back to you and they don't have their meds, they're not taking it, or there could be some other burden where it was switched to not what you have. Thought, or what you thought they were taking but i know personally like i've seen where they get discharged on eloquence or you know blood thinner kind of like you mentioned and all of a sudden it's just not covered and now we have to try and get a hold of the physician or the prescriber in the hospital and get it switched or something else or else like you said they're not going to have any other uh, blood clotting medication which could obviously pose a life-threatening issue and send them back to the er and thus driving up healthcare costs since we know er's are super expensive another one i've seen this big time on are psych meds and this could be something where it could be, I'm just trying to think of top of my head, something where there was like 50 milligrams and they were doing it twice a day, but the insurance only covers, a, you know, one tablet a day. Otherwise they want to go up to hundred milligrams and just kind of cut it in half or figure it out. Well, that might not work for the person for any number of reasons. It could be that they just don't have the dexterity to use a pill cutter. It could be that they just don't understand some of those things. It's easier just to take one pill a day when really the cost is pretty negligible since a lot of the stuff is generic. I think the one I'm thinking of was a uh, mirtazapine in this case, uh, mm-hmm. But this or uh, quetiapine is one of the two. But either way, it's one of those things where the insurances are interjecting, of, Hey, this is optimal care. But really, it, nothing's optimal care if the person's not getting it. And that's a lot of times what they cause in these situations, correct?
1: Right. And it becomes so hard in the sense that as a clinician, you're taught to individualize care for patients.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so. When we look at a patient and their ability to remember to take their medicine and how to take their medicine, we set up this great plan and then we get them to the pharmacy and then they can't do that plan. It really, it really sets the patient up for, fa- for failure and frustration. So they, they think that they're on the right track and then they're stalled and it just puts them back farther.
0: Yeah. And another thing I know that I've seen some hospitals around me employ is I'm not sure what the exact role is. I've heard it in different things, but it's almost like a patient care advocate who has to make sure that all the prior authorizations and all the medications are covered before they leave. And that's like someone's full time job is just to go around and make sure all the discharges are handled and everything's covered and things like that. Whereas really, if you know, we kind of had some better management of how the PBMs do things or some better insight into it and better leveraged pharmacists, we could pretty much do that on the fly. And really use our educational knowledge to really help take care of that person i don't want to say on the fly as in like kind of half-assing it but on the fly as in like hey we know the meds we see this we can make that simple change or we can make that switch is that another thing that you know you kind of really do with your ambul- ambulatory care setting
1: it's frustrating because i grew up and i worked at meyer for almost 20 years and I can see the community side, and there's legitimately your hands are tied in the sense of making a clinical decision on what's best for the patient. And having my role now as a clinical pharmacy specialist in the ambulatory care setting, working with primary care physicians, they don't really care what propellant is in your albuterol inhaler. You're having asthma, you need an inhaler, go ahead and get albuterol. But at the retail setting or the community pharmacy where you are the one that's making that decision, because they're not A/B rated and the, the, the laws are so tight and the PBMs have so much control, patients go days again without being able to breathe well because they can't get their albuterol inhaler. So the office is to have the primary care pharmacist in the setting working with the physician is very helpful because we can train physicians on how to order, order medications that give the pharmacist the permission to, to make some of those changes. But it's, it's something that's continuing to evolve.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of the things that I've always seen that I thought was interesting. That really, that person—I don't want to say they wouldn't have a job, but they wouldn't necessarily be necessary if you didn't have some of these barriers that are put up by PBMs in place.
1: Well, and the thing is, is I would take that a step further in the sense of necessary. It's been said that clinicians to be trained, working at the top of their license, and to do prior authorization, it does not take a doctorate degree for seven <laughs> plus years. So what that would do is allow people to not have this bottleneck of paperwork that needs to get done. But when we look at, sorry, I'm going to go down another rabbit hole, but we look at primary care, we look at the shortage of physicians and we look at the baby booming population and the increase of chronic disease, the burden of the workload in those offices is gigantic. And if you can then change it so that Not only the the pharmacist that works in primary care, but the community pharmacist can actually do clinical work to measure blood pressure, make recommendations, not yet controlled, probably should do some titration, actually control the progression of disease, prevent worsening outcomes by doing the clinical work necessary to impact patient health. Instead of paperwork arguing costs, <laughs> costs are important, don't get me wrong, we have to be able to pay our bills at the end of the day, but in the same sense, we know somebody with atrial fibrillation needs to be an anticoagulation, and the DOACs have been proven to be superior to warfarin, but with have patients on warfarin, because they can't afford to have a DOAC.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good call out too. Is obviously costs do matter. That's kind of the backbone of everything we do, but that's also what we're trained to do. And like you said, sometimes it's you'd rather pay a, a dollar or two now to avoid a you know, hundred dollars later in a case of something like that with AFib. So that's a good call out there. One th- mm-hmm. one thing I was curious is when it comes to how what's kind of started this PBM bill. We talked about what started it, but was Rutledge PCMA really like a catalyst for this that kind of opened the door wide up since it went eight oh in favor of uh, Arkansas instead of, or Rutledge instead of PCMA?
1: I think it is the springboard to say, um, it always takes that like one little piece of sand to kind of just start the flood of information. And it's been a battle that's been fighting for years. So I've been involved in NPA and i kind of get a little bit on politics, so I watch this stuff. And I've been a pharmacist for 15 years and this whole entire time it's been a topic. DRGs, payments, formularies, PBMs, callbacks. It's not new, but it never goes anywhere. And it's tough because when we look at PCMA and the power and the dollars that they have, and when we talk about politics and who has the money, the little guys at the retail community setting don't have that money to be able to make those big, strong arguments and put their hands in the pot enough to say, okay, you're influencing me enough. So what this Rutledge versus PCMA did was say, okay, no, this really is probably not ethical and it's not great for patient care. So it, it, I'm viewing it as just support for those that continue to push this and its support at the highest level to say, okay, we mm-hmm. need to look at these processes and start to make some changes because... Everybody's saying that the cost of medicine is one of the highest drivers in care, which I disagree with. But this is, is health care in general more affordable. Medications are said to be the most costly, which I don't really agree with. But in the sense of having PBMs, they're one of the few organizations that continue to make money year after year. And when we look at the spread of money across healthcare, care, the cost of medications is, is 15 to 20%, which is big. But if you look at the impact and how we can keep people out of the hospital because we no longer need to have amputations because my diabetes is not controlled. So I'm following guideline-directed medication to control blood sugars. I'm not having strokes because I'm controlling hypertension. I'm not having strokes because I'm on my anticoagulation. The PBMs that are controlling what drugs we can have and how they're making their money based on rebates and callbacks we don't even understand that because they don't have an open book of business and when we look at contractors of the government we are required in a sense to to say how we come in and how our money's coming in and out so we're we're supposed to have an open book of business as contractors for the government and pbms are one of the few that don't have to follow that rule
0: yeah, it's almost like if you were working with a bad investment banker because they don't really have a fiduciary responsibility, and at least in most states that I've seen, so there's no like end where they have to make sure that the government gets the best price on everything and that it has the best financial situation if it comes to something like a Medicaid program or even the employer. But at the same point, they really their only goal is to just make sure that the patient has like access or coverage for medication, not even necessarily the best or what is ideal for them. So they write a formulary. Mm-hmm. It's tied to whatever they set and there's obviously you can get prioritizations exceptions with it but at other points and times you can't and there's just no way to get that covered now sometimes that's justified with certain medications for sure but in other cases it's totally not and even if you have a valid justification they're still going to switch somebody for whatever reason whether it be to an in-network pharmacy because that's the way the PBM set up or whether it be to a certain in-network medication or something that's covered that way or what makes them the most money over something else by just putting a prior authorization in place. Is, is that kind of what you're alluding to is they really don't have any responsibility currently in the, in the mm-hmm. healthcare system.
1: Yep. The, no, the PBMs are telling the government that they're actually saving them money and multiple States have studies that show actually when we're looking even just at the Medicaid standpoint is the PBMs are costing the systems a lot more money than what they claim to be saving. So there's the checks and balances aren't there at all.
0: Yeah, I would love to see what 3X's advisor does. It's been doing state to state. Just really take that to Medicare and see what happens because that would be an
1: mm-hmm.
0: an awesome study that would cover pretty much every state since Medicare is everywhere and probably some of the territories and mm-hmm. could really show some uh some probably some huge discrepancies there. Uh so have you, are you seeing any pushback from PCMA at a state level? So mm-hmm. Obviously, we know they were they lost yeah. federally. Are you seeing it at a state level? Yeah.
1: It was comical. And so I went to the House to speak on the advantages from a pharmacy perspective on why we want this bill to go into play. And PCMA had a representative there. And it was slightly comical in how they were trying to defend themselves. And any time that they asked a question, it right back to everything that we've talked about, and particularly one that continues to, to stand up to me where CVS Caremark is a PBM, and we have CVS pharmacies everywhere, pharmacies, sorry. And it's just like to what you're saying the fiduciary responsibility. You require uh, CVS pharmacies to be used for CVS, and you're creating the costs or the, the drugs that are supposed to be um, used, and it's just this controlled little niche of they can actually control how money's come in and out and it was visible even to the legislators when PCMA came in to say that this bill isn't helpful to population where it's the exact opposite
0: yeah and it's it's interesting especially the CVS because of the top down integration they have is just so immense compared to any, any of the other people who are in the PBM field or even the pharmacy field just they have so much weight in that and it might only be I forget the exact number. It might be like twenty-five or thirty percent of the market. But when you have complete vertical integration, it's just a huge, uh, almost unfair edge over everybody else. Because like that little independent mom and pop in the corner cannot compete with a company that just breaks in billions every quarter. Because <laughs> God, mm-hmm. they're they're probably lucky they break even in a given quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh,
1: it's, just, it's sad when you look at that. The you look at the little guy and and just the patient and the, being able to take their medicine, and then you see. The people and how much money the organization is making and then the people at the top are actually making it's kind of scary
0: yeah and so i know in my state if i remember correctly it was the uh we obviously had a huge um 60 million dollar scandal that involved like a pay for player bribery if you will and the pcma lobbyist was actually right right tied into that and to me when i saw that i was just like well that is just defines pbms to me and Obviously, it wasn't what was getting talked about, but it just was the epitome of what's kind of going on at some of these state house or D.C. politics, if you will, when it comes to how much money they have to throw around. The the bribery had nothing to do with PBMs, but just seeing that that's who they hired just kind of spoke to the Mm -hmm. quality of who they work with, if you will.
1: Yes.
0: All right. So, hey, before I let you go, I'm going to ask two questions I ask everybody Mm -hmm. in the podcast. And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to PBMs, but if you could change one thing in pharmacy that wasn't a law, what would it be? It's
1: Huff, answering that question in the sense of not being a law, is working in Michigan we have a lot of freedom and availability. The thing that I would want to change to allow for that to be sustainable is the, uh, the strength and the voice of pharmacists in general. I think a lot of times we want to, from our scientific background, want to be so specific and so correct that we sometimes don't push the envelope to say why aren't we doing this? Why can't we do this? We get stuck in the everyday of I need to show up and I need to push from a dispensing standpoint. My my employer says I have to do this, this, and this, where it's not completely always the right thing in the 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 end game of patient health and patient outcomes. So I wish that we could have more strength and vision together as a team to say what's the right thing for the right reason and let's start working for that versus showing up and working all day. And we're seeing that in some pharmacies now that they're actually getting a lunch break, but we hear about workplace conditions and burnout and situations. And it's sad because we get stuck in the idea like, okay, this is my paycheck and this is my life and I got to show up, but let's just step back and do the right thing for the right reason. And everyone will probably feel a lot better.
0: Yeah, we've seen, obviously, Ohio dropped a huge uh, workplace study recently. And also, California has one out now. I'm interested to see what other states start populating that since it kind of was a very bright light in a dark spot for for Ohio and for Mm -hmm. pharmacy. All right, now, if Mm -hmm. you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why?
1: I would like to look at um, AV-rated drugs versus therapeutically equivalent alternatives, and it's sad because this is actually probably driven out of exactly PBM. But as a pharmacist working in the community setting, if you have a patient come in and they need human organ and um, insulin, and it's not covered, you as a pharmacist cannot make the decision that you know is 100% ethically equal by giving them Novolog or Fiat or a PEDRA. You have to wait, send it back, slow down care, we need to revisit AB rated because therapeutically equivalent is probably a better alternative answer for giving patients their medications.
0: Yeah, insulin, that's such a huge one when it comes to that. When you look at uh, mm-hmm. even your long actings, you know, you got, what is it, Levimir, mm-hmm. uh Lantus, and Basiglar, which are all pretty similar, if not almost identical, and insurances mm-hmm. have different ones on formulary, and then we know the answer. We have to call mm-hmm. the doctor. We have to wait. The person's going without it mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. get them what we know they're going to need or get in the end anyway. And
1: um, that happened to me with a patient that has started new medicine for um a cancer treatment which has thrown their blood sugars off in it friday prescribed the insulin to get them started found out monday again they went all weekend without any insulin and in their blood sugars are four and five hundred where we could have gotten them started
0: yeah and then you're worried about pancreatitis and everything else dka whatever mm-hmm. whatever can happen with that which is none of it is good mm-hmm yeah Hey, Heather, thanks for coming on the podcast. If people want to learn more uh, about what Michigan Pharmacists Association is doing or this bill, what's a good reference site for them?
1: Really, MichiganPharmacistsAssociation.org is, it's got everything on there. Um, great reference, all kinds of information. And on there, you have access to who's on the board and you can communicate, reach out to us and anybody that's in the office there. So organizations trying to do a lot to help access information be available for everybody
0: yeah and just for people who are listening a lot of these pbm fights right now and i'm gonna have some other people on the podcast are happening at a state level which really is being burdened by your state pharmacist association who are working with other people obviously Mm -hmm. but that's why these organizations are so important right now to our profession so um shameless plug if you're in michigan join michigan pharmacist association it's huge right now (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> not shameless it's important again your voice isn't going to be heard if you're not involved and if you're not there to be part of that voice we can't make the best decisions that helps you, you practice site not shameless
0: yeah i don't important. know what i don't know what your dues are but down here in ohio it's like basically for less than a dollar a day you can help change pharmacy to just plug the sarah mclaughlin uh, ad if you will
1: well, I know it's, I don't know what, we haven't broken down that, but it's less than 1% of your annual income to be a member and even less of that as a technician. So it, it seems like it might be a lot, but it's it's not. And it's necessary because we need to have the infrastructure there to be able to do this work.
0: Yeah. So again, hey, if we get this fixed, we can have a lot better lives for everybody and patients, Thank us, for sure. everybody.
1: <laughs> for sure. Thank you for the work you're doing and in inviting me today.
0: Uh, no problem, Heather. To keep up the great work up there in the uh, the state up north, since I really have a hard time saying Michigan. But uh, as always, everyone, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.